Jesse, let's do this thing. Do what the... Oh, the intro? This thing. This thing. Oh, this is the last podcast of the last chapter of Sacrosanctum Conchilia. You are wrong because we will do one on the appendix. Well, we might do one on the... We will okay, do we one will. on the appendix. I thought the appendix was removed. It is not. Oh, hey, we have a new uh, Patreon supporter, so shout out to Hervé Blancard. And, cool uh, name. I know. He's uh, taking a few of our online courses. He's helping us out on, on Patreon. So thank you very much for your support. And you know, I'm famous for saying this support does not go to the Idiot Fund. Mm-hmm. This actually funds this podcast. Absolutely. Which is still underfunded. But soon we will get to the amount and when you will make a rap for us. Well, the rap has been made. We need not a rap, the rap video. The rap video, yeah. which will include Chris and me. All right. So without further ado, episode 27 of season three of The Liturgy Guys. Where we're talking about church architecture. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. I only have one question for you, Jesse. What? What is your problem? I don't have a problem. Yes, you do. Your problem is sacred art and furnishings. Oh, I actually like sacred art and furnishings. They go in the worship spaces. And oh, my well, goodness. Just let it be said from the beginning that I like is the ultimate litmus that Sacrosanctum Concilium puts forward for sacred art and architecture. Do you like it? Yes. Okay, there you go. Let's go to now, the for those chapter. Who don't yeah. know. Well, Dennis, Jesse just said worship space. Yeah, I tell me, that. Chris, why uh, is that making my blood pressure rise? Because uh, because uh, Jesse said it. Yeah. <laughs> Most things you say make my blood pressure rise. Space isn't sacramentalized like a building is. A building looks like heaven. Space doesn't look like heaven. Like it's, it's the absence of something. Well, it? sort of. The, the word space is not a bad word. A building contains space. And in fact, when the building is dedicated, the Holy Spirit's invited to dwell in there, and that space becomes different. It's objectively different. But um, we don't call a building a space. We call a building a building. So there you go. Sacred Art and Furnishings, Chapter 7. So how does it begin? So this is uh, the last chapter, Chapter 7, beginning at Paragraph 120 and running all the way up to... One. Wait, this is the last 30. one? It begins this at This is the last one. Can you believe 122. it? 122. 122. Sorry. 122. I see. Do you light. have this one memorized, Dennis? Everybody should know Sacrosanctum Concilium. 122, 123, 124. Why? Wow. Oh, because. 123. Hold on. I, I think I might actually know that one. Really? Is that where it says it should. This is the thing that you uh, harp on people about having noble simplicity, right? That's 124. Oh, dang That's it. That's pretty close. I thought I, was, I thought I had Let's it. begin at the beginning. Darn yeah. it. Take us uh, through 122. Okay, well, the church says, Very rightly, the fine arts are considered to rank among the noblest expression of human genius. Why? You know, we don't need fine arts for mass. Right? Jesus saved us. We say yes to him and we're done, right? But no. Here it is. Religious and its highest achievement is sacred art. By their very nature. What am I talking about? Nature? Ontology. Ontology. What Ontology. Is it? What is it, DMAC? Ontology. We should okay. get a bell for that. Ding. Okay. And 
the the nature of these art is to be related to God's boundless beauty, for this is the reality which these human efforts are trying to express in some way. How about that? Notice, it's not whatever the artist feels like, whatever new technological thing comes along, what'll make you rich in the world of artistic intelligentsia. It's how does an artist figure out the mind of God and his own beauty and make that reality knowable to people in some way. It says express. Express is okay. What are we expressing? God's boundless beauty. And I, call, when, I call my wife my little boundless beauty. You probably should. <laughs> and how do we know if these things bring honor, uh, honor and glory to God, Chris? If they... Reveal make, make what us, they are intended to do. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> well, that's the beauty. Part. I was going to say make uh, saints out of you. Well, Vatican II says it in 122 right there. Oh. If they work exclusively at turning men's thoughts to God persuasively and devoutly, and they're dedicated to God in the cause of his greater honor and glory, then they're considered pretty darn good liturgical art. So I'll just say we're both right. All right, so let's summarize. What should art, liturgical art, look like? Jesus. Okay. And uh, which doesn't mean a big picture of Jesus on the wall. All of creation, Christ took all of creation back to the Father. So it's the glory of the heavenly Jerusalem as understood in the mind of God. The ontology of us in our perfection is often presented to us liturgically, whether it's in sound or fabric or gold or gems or visual art. As we're of the oh, so you're not to. you're not saying like make an altar with the face of Jesus on it. No, but the altar is Christ. But how do you make the alterness of Christ known in the way an altar does? You don't have to make an altar look like a tree. You make an altar look like an altar, but it should be elevated, glorified, perfected, just as Christ is elevated, glorified, and perfected. So that's what we're talking about. The, the God's boundless beauty is being expressed in the way proper to the thing that's being made. Okay, easy. All right, easy. that was a good episode, everybody. Easy. And if you have questions... Never the, mind, we have more to say. I am started now, right? I've been, you know how yeah. long I've been waiting for the art and architecture section? <laughs> he's, how he's many been, weeks, oh He's Lord. been waiting for the last section of Sacrosanctum Contrillium since we started. Oh, I know. <laughs> how long, oh Lord, right? So Mother Church has always been the friend of the fine arts. Why? Why, Jesse? Because lots of patrons want to pay for fine art things. No. Oh. Although that's good if they do. But why is Holy Mother Church the friend of the fine arts? What can the fine arts do? That nothing else can do. They can reveal God to us in a, in a very intimate way. Well, yes. Other things can do that, though, right? I mean, that I can put, pat you on the back and be Jesus for you in a very intimate way. Yeah, but it gives us a different type of access to God. That's true. Because they can be sacramental signs and symbols. But how can you sacramentalize the sound of angels singing? By, by imitating the sound of angels singing. How can you have visual access to the things of heaven? By making visual things that look like they have access to heaven. <laughs> yes, exactly. So this is where imagination comes in, right? Because typically speaking, imagination is enabled to present to yourself in your own mind things you may never have seen. But you can sort of say, what would an angel be like? What would an angelic song be like? And then the artist... You make an image out of it. Images it, right? Imagines mm -hmm. it and then makes it knowable to the senses. And so the fine arts are the friend of the church because they're actually contributing to this larger question of sanctifying the people and glorifying God. What's that line that you say all the time that uh, you say it so often? Shut I up, probably Chris. don't remember. <laughs> I remember that one. That uh, uh, art and architecture is the is it the built form of theology? Yes, uh, architecture is the built form of ideas generally, whether they're good ideas or bad ideas. And church architecture is the built form of theology. 
visible sanctus, isn't that one of your lines? Uh, yeah, sanctus for the eye or visible sanctus, right? Yeah, so when you see a great mural of the angels and saints, those are the people and the beings who are doing the song. That okay, so you can do the sanctus in words, you can do the sanctus in music, you can do the sanctus in images. Vision, in images. Yeah, you can do it in pretty much any. How would you glorify the Lord? You know, ice and snow, bless the Lord. Take Podcast, care of the poor. bless the Podcast, Lord. Podcast, right, exactly. I mean, in a sense, hopefully we're, we are praising the Lord by doing this kind of thing and spreading this knowledge around. So the, you know, the Vatican II calls it a noble ministry of art with a special aim, meaning, meaning knowable. You are so good. Yeah, actually, yeah, noble So is, is turned up in both of those first two paragraphs. Go on your uh, jag about my noble, uh, rant. noble. My noble, noble rant. rant. It is so good. I asked this in class today, and the students, were, they just knew it because they've heard me say it so many times. Noble is a lazy man's way of saying Knowable. Knowable, right? K-N-O-W-A-B-L-E. So you're like, oh, it's a knowable. It's knowable, right? And then knowable. Is it really? Yes, it is. It's your uh, linguistics experts know that knowable is hard to say. Whenever we have a lot of um, extra syllables, we, we tend to, we turn Worcestershire, Worcestershire into Worcester, you know, it's just sort of how it happens. So noble comes from the Latin infinitive no, sure. Why are you looking at me like you've never heard this before? Well, I have. I oh, just uh, you're just no. You pon- it's like the liturgical year. You're just pondering it again. Um, and so, if it's knowable, then it's revealing what it is at the level of its nature, which is the revelation of ontology, ontology which is what we call uh, beautiful. Right. So, noble beauty is I've redone. Okay. In the ontology, the nature of things churchy is the infinite beauty of God. Right, signs Which and symbols of the supernatural world manifested liturgically in sound, vision, vestments, all the things that we know for liturgy. And if they look dingy and dumpy and plain, then they're not making the heavenly realities knowable. And so, beauty and this full expression are are pretty um, related. So, what you just said there, Chris, they should be worthy, becoming and beautiful signs and symbols of heavenly realities. That's one one trend. The church should look like heaven. Because the church is the action of the mystical body of Christ. The foretaste of heaven. Exactly. So, Dennis. Chris. Why do so many churches not look like heaven? That was what I was oh, going to ask. Oh, my goodness. Why do we see, like, brutalist design? I mean, come just, on. It's, ob- it's obvious here. What's the what's Oh, the I know. I know why. Because the church building is a skin for liturgical action. Well, in part, we've had some bad documents and books over the years. And by the way, brutalist is a word people use wrongly a lot of the time. Did I use it wrongly? Well, I don't know how you used it, but... Uh, let's just assume I did it, I did it correctly. <laughs> in France, in French, there's a, a, was a movement in the 60s to, to have uh, raw architecture. So beton brut means raw architecture. So they would put their forms up and they'd pour the architecture, the cement in it, concrete in it, and then they'd take the forms off and you would see the imprint of the forms in the architecture and that was called the raw, the raw concrete. So beton brut means brutalism. It's not, it doesn't mean brutal like... You know, some beastly thing that comes to be. Oh, you know, no. Head. That's what I was. I, I actually was. You, no, I was. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, guys, I'm serious. But it often does turn out to be brutal in the other sense that you're talking about uh, as well. So you have these earthly architectural theories, Chris, to answer your question that, you know, the only true architecture is architecture that's of our time. And our time is no, you know, known for architecture that's glass, steel, and concrete. It's the industrial age. And so you have to have architecture that speaks of its own age. Notice none of that is sacramental language about the heavenly Jerusalem. It's just sac- language about expressing a questionable theory of what defines our own time. Is part of the confusion what Jesse um, asked earlier at number 124 about this noble beauty? 124? I have to jump all the way ahead. Yeah, well, noble sorry. beauty, right? That's yeah, Don't you know 124 by heart? 
Well, 124. What does it say? Should, oh, well, it says ordinary should strive after noble beauty rather than mere extravagance. Or sometimes they say mere uh, sumptuous display. And some Once, people think it's noble simplicity. Well, there is a noble simplicity mentioned in this section, but it's not about art and architecture. It says noble beauty, which, in other words, knowable beauty, right? The revelation of God's things. What is mere extravagance or what is mere sumptuous? Sumptuous. That's when you put, like you always talk about things on things mean things. But if you put like too <laughs> that, many things. That's my brain, people. If you put, <laughs> no, that's my interpretation. Things on things brain. mean things. Let's be very clear. We all know that. <laughs> but if you put like too many things on things, then what? Gilding what, the lily. Oh, yeah. If you, if you put too much on there, then you can't see the detail of what it actually is. If so you if put you, gold leaf on the lily, what can't you see? The lily. the lily. There you go. Now, if you put a little bit of gold leaf on the edges of the lily, it lets the lily be the lily, but then raises it up to the glorified lily. If you cover it up with too much stuff, you can't see the thing anymore. So noble simplicity means have the minimum number of things you need to have to let the thing be knowable. But that doesn't mean deficiency, right? Because if it's going to be knowable, it has to be knowable. It has to be the right amount. In its heavenly condition, right? Liturgical things always have this eschatological quality. So if you cut into the actual nobleness of the eschatological quality, then you just get an everyday earthly thing. And that's what, where we hang around Ugh. most of the time. Earthly things are the worst. But mere sumptuous display means, look how rich I am. It comes sumptuous. It's the Latin word, if I remember right, is sumtuositatem, which means... Sumptuousness, but sumere is the Latin verb for to spend, right? So we get the notion mere spending. No, that's not what we're doing. We're having a noble simplicity rather than mere spending. So we spend enough to do what we have to do, but not so much that we just look like we're being rich people who have a lot of stuff, right? Because stuff isn't always the benefit, but stuff in the right place that indicates the truth. <laughs> hey, that's what we're talking I'm about. I'm not far off. You're using the word stuff. I was using the word things, okay? Yeah, things. Well, I always say that. What do you call... Ritual festivities when you hang stuff on stuff, right? Like your house or your body or whatever. Mm -hmm. So liturgy is always festive in that sense. I don't want to rush you through this oh, chapter yes, because I know that uh, this is important to you. But the next, uh, uh, 125, I think illustrates uh, this point where it's talking about the use and placement of images. My translation says, the practice of placing sacred images in churches so that they may vener be venerated by the faithful is to be maintained. Nevertheless, their numbers should be moderate and their relative positions should reflect right order. Yeah, how about that? Ooh, I, I think I know where this is going. You do? Only because we were talking about this this weekend, Dennis, at your lecture that you gave. But um, one of the things that was happening you know, pre-council was um, a number of devotions that were popping up. And so is this referencing the fact that um, devotions should be in a place proper to where they are and not you know, maybe in the sanctuary specifically? I think possibly. I think on the one hand, they want to say there should be, and Dennis, you can speak to this too. Oh, I will. That, that people need... Am I even kind of right? That, yeah, yeah, okay. you are. You're, uh, that, that, that people need devotional images that they can venerate okay? because it's a part of the faith and it's a part of our humanity. But the other thing is about this proper and right order. That doesn't mean that the more images that you can... Uh, randomly and chaotically and confusingly just cram into a church or a certain niche or a sanctuary or whatever That sounds it is. like mere spending, Chris. Well, it's part of the, it's, it's supposed to reflect the right order in heaven. Heaven isn't this, uh, you know, the, this room of chaos. Everyone mm -hmm. is in the right place doing the right thing at the right time. It's the restored order. And the church, if it's going to sacramentalize that, 
and ontologize that. Mm-hmm. If it's going to reflect that ontology. It needs to be. <laughs> it needs to have saints and images in the right place. True enough. However, I think Sacrosanct and Concilium is a little weak in this area. Okay. Oh. If, if you read some of the uh, Eastern writers and icons, they have a very deep positive theology of the image. What do I mean by a positive theology? It's like thumbs up theology versus a negative theology. What are we talking about here, Chris? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. What are yeah, we talking about, theolo- Jesse? Active rather than the absence of? Well, kind of, yeah. Positive theology tells you what a thing is, right, and what it's for. What you talk about here in 125 doesn't really say what church images are. It says they should be set up to be venerated by the faithful. It's okay. There are images that are worthy of veneration. And, but then it's like, oh, but not so many, and they should be in right order so they don't confuse people. Like That's a, that's a very skittish, kind of scared cat approach. to. Why were they scared, do you think? Well, I think they're still going all the way back to the time of the Reformation, and there's all this confusion about the place of images, but also because the 19th century was known as sort of the image on image on image uh, kind of... Stuff on stuff on stuff. stuff but not in the good way. Uh-huh. So the 19th century is known for having this fear of empty space, and uh, if you see like church buildings from the 1880s, there's statue on top of statue on top of carved thing behind of which is... Whoa, oh, rang the bell. Yes, I ring the bell for myself because I'm right. Uh, behind which is a mural and three, you know, the Sacred Heart next to the infant Jesus of Prague next to whatever. And there's like, whoa, stuff here. And they didn't seem to be in right order. And so they're kind of trying to go for this noble simplicity that they thought the 19th century didn't have. But what the iconographers of the West will be like, there's a positive theology of the sacred image, which is this is a saint coming into your existence. This is a saint who is already a participant in the liturgy. So, you know, we talk about this a lot, the images being the notion of the saints who are with us in the heavenly liturgy, but it doesn't say that in Vatican II. I need to pull this in from other places. It's a little bit more in the catechism. This is where the Eastern theology is really, really helpful in the way of uh, breathing with both lungs. So if you were going to say, oh, well, images, if there's too many of them and they're not in right order, we should probably just paint that mural base, right? Rip down those side altars and just have a big empty church with a statue here and a statue there. That was kind of the model of the 70s, if they're reading Vatican II the wrong way. So a liturgical mural is awesome. It is the visual sanctus. It is the liturgy itself. But a whole catalog full of devotional statues sort of crammed around the altar is not the same thing. So... I would say not only have some for veneration on one-on-one devotional time, but also rediscover the great eschatological second coming visual mural. And that's just, a whole positive theology of art. There's a very uh, uh, well-known, uh, I think it's the second most viewed piece of art after the Mona Lisa. It's the Ghent altarpiece. Yeah. And which oh, yeah. when you were uh, talking about that, right? So there's the lamb on the altar. And he's this, big and in the middle. And the, yeah, and there's uh, some angels with uh, thuribles mm-hmm. around them. And then a little ways off, there's a little bit, there's Is different this a groups. Uh, well, it's an altarpiece, yeah, that you would open and right. close. And there's the big green countryside. Yeah, but I was just thinking, you know, well, what if, I mean, this is a beautiful piece. Well, what if he just kept on painting saints and saints and saints and saints, just filled up every square inch of uh, saints? Then which, would, you know, you there is a, the lamb. I don't know the larger context of that. There's a Fra Angelica piece where there's all these, it's like they're going back and forth, these saints. Do you know that one? Uh, I'm not sure which one you're talking about. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, they're like on uh, switchbacks. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. But you can have complexity. There's nothing wrong with complexity Mm -hmm. as long as it's arranged hierarchically. So many of those medieval paintings, they have the the important people are actually bigger 
than mm-hmm. the, the other people. And so there, there's many of them there, but the, it lets the dominant, more important figure be the important one. Usually it's Christ, and the other ones will be uh, smaller next to them. But to show you a little more of this scared cat thing, continue there in 127, right? Okay. It says, bishops should take pains to instill artists with the spirit of sacred art and sacred liturgy. Good, right? But it also says something along the line of they should remove from the church anything that is improper or, oh yeah, uh, oh, it's actually 124. We're going backward. Uh, what does it say? Let bishops carefully exclude from the house of God and other sacred places those works of artists which are repugnant to faith, morals, and Christian piety, and which offend true religious sense by their distortion of forms or by lack of artistic worth, by mediocrity, or by pretense. I, my own has the word depraved forms. Yeah. So, you know, good advice, right? But it's, what it's not saying is, let the sacred images be eschatological visions of the heavenly liturgy. And, you know, you don't want artful of all these bad things. Um, but there, you can see how it's a little bit in the, the negative theology of don't do this as opposed to do this. Um, so you, know, you can say, well, did Vatican II really give us a lot of uh, theology of the artist? Not too much. I mean, you can tease out some things from it, but for the most part, no one would ever say, oh, I read chapter seven and now I know what to do to make a great liturgical image in my church. Now there is though about artists, this is 127. Uh, all artists who, prompted by their talents, desire to serve God's glory and holy church should ever bear in mind that they are engaged in a kind of sacred imitation of God the Creator. Yes, say more. Oh. Well, I'm, I'm going to pass this off to you, but what okay, it reminds is, me of is the John Paul II letter to artists exactly. that I think really seems to uh, extrapolate on that. Is this artist versus craftsman? Uh, yes, in a way. Yeah. Right. Well, it's God, it's creator versus craftsman. So yeah, sorry. God the Creator creates creates ex nihilo, which is from nothing. But in a sense, he's a craftsman. You know, what, what does he make Adam out of? Clay. So he takes something of the earth and makes Adam out of it, and he breathes his own life in. And so God's both the creator and the craftsman in that sense. But then the human being is supposed to do what God does, in a way, analogous, but always much less, which is use intellect and will and the matter of the earth to create an image of a saint or an angel or a building or whatever it happens to be, to do what God does, to know and to will, and, to, and the humans have to develop their craft, and then they create, in a sense, but uh, uh, mostly are crafting something that imitates the mind of God and makes it knowable in the world, which is exactly what God does. And so we have a really high dignity. To be an artist isn't just... Oh, um, this is the cre- the thing I've chosen to do with my life because I wasn't good at math. You know, that's not what you're, we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who has... Although the, I understand that sentiment. <laughs> the capacity to see perfection, to know perfection, to have the vision of the heavenly things, and then has the developed skill, knowledge, and understanding to actually make those things accessible to other people. That's like a theologian, right? What does a theologian do? Somehow they know, and then they put together things, and the Holy Spirit lands on them, and boom, and they have the great idea, and they write a book, and they share it with everybody. Well, the artist does all of that as well. And so Vatican II says, you know, they should do it, and seminarians should be trained about how to do all this in 128 and 129. And, uh, of course, the seminarians in all of Vatican II, the seminarians should become experts in everything, right? They almost they can't do everything. <laughs> they should also become experts in finance and business. <laughs> right, exactly. Musical studies. Web development. Art. But, you know, what has more authority than an ecumenical council document, Chris? I don't know. A motu proprio. Well, oh, I don't know. <laughs> it says uh, they should be knowledgeable and worthy in well-planned construction of sacred buildings, the shape and construction of altars, 
the location of the Eucharistic Tabernacle and all of that stuff. So, but you know, if they're not, it mentions someone somewhere in here too that there's supposed to be a diocesan uh, commission on sacred art and architecture that can assist the bishop and can assist pastors in passing judgment, is how it uh, <laughs> reads in my book, uh, to evaluate these things so that they're built according to the mind of the church as expressed uh, here in Sacrosanctum Concilium and also in uh, throughout the tradition. Right. There's a funny little end there in 130. Why would, do you think, Chris, it would all of a sudden say, it is fitting that the use of pontificals be reserved to those ecclesiastical persons who have Episcopal rank or some particular jurisdiction? I know. It's almost like, oh, this is about to go to print. We forgot to put that in. Let's just throw <laughs> What does the use of pontificals mean? I, uh, when I was reading this before, I asked myself, I think it must mean Episcopal... Um, Ritual, like the pontifical. No, I don't think it means the book. I think it means pontifical things, like rings and staffs and miters. Although I, I don't know. Okay, well maybe that's because they think of those as artistic things, and uh, they have to be dealt with. It is a funny little like caboose of the caboose. Yeah, that's the and that's the last uh, chapter of Sacrosanctum Chile, the one you just read. Yeah, boom. It's not much of an ending. I don't know who, you know, their editor should have made them You know, they were tired. It's like the, the cappuccino only took them so far, and they're like, oh, man, it's a long day. It's like on your job description where it's like, we, I think we covered everything. Oh, and other duties as assigned. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Like, we might as well put some other stuff in. So there you go. Can I offer a uh, kind of circle back as as uh, somebody who did not want to go through this whole thing? I don't think yeah, you get that chance, but I guess I'll be merciful and I'll say well, yes. We're going to talk about the appendix too, so we're not really over. What? Yet. Thank God we're not over yet. But what do you want to circle back about, Chris? Number seven said all the, the way back. To, all the way back. The liturgy is considered as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus I Christ. I love that. In the liturgy, the sanctification of the man is signified by signs perceptible to the senses and is affected in a way which corresponds with each of these signs. So like yep. music, time, uh, the calendar, the divine office, art and architecture. Furnishings. In the liturgy, the whole public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is by the head and the members. members. That's kind of, I think, the, the big picture. And we've They should have just repeated that at the end. Yeah, they should have. Right. We've got five senses to know the things of God and to become like God. And the church gives us all those things. Our five senses, our intellect, our will, our sense of the passage of time. And so, Sacrosan Concilium, classic document. I don't mean just because it's old now, but I mean in many ways a classical document. The theology is traditional and the uh, flexibility is good. And so, interpreting how do you read this document? Very, very important going forward. Hopefully after, what, it's about 172 podcasts on Sacrosanctum Concilium. Oh, I actually now. think if it's... there's anybody out there. I think it's about 12 <laughs> no, that we did. That's not that much. Oh, really? Okay. In any case, this is the way to know how to read Vatican II, at least according to the mind of Chris and... Not me. <laughs> don't, don't include me on that. <laughs> but can we get a bell on this? Way to go, fathers of the council. Good job, everybody. Thanks, Holy Spirit. Way to go, Dennis and Chris. I think we should go out for several beers after finishing this now. <laughs> I agree. Okay, beer. Wait, let's answer a liturgy question first. Is it about beer? I don't, probably not. Okay, then let's do it. 
I bet you thought you were going to listen to a Bishop Barron ad or, or like time. a Scott Hahn ad. Not this time. No, it's a different ad. Have you ever wished, Jesse, that you could take courses with the content of the Liturgy Guys and the Liturgical Institute in the very comfort of your own home? I, I have not, but that's because I work here. But oh, I, I can imagine what it would be like if I did. Well, for those who do, we now have online courses we could call personal enrichment, continuing education on various topics. Four of them are come I'll be up there soon. Two are there right now. Two there now. And by March 19th, there will be three more. So five total. Uh, lots of Dennis and Chris goodness. So you can go to www.liturgy.online. Three with me. Ha ha ha. Only two with Chris. So it's a little competition. Please register and watch. Mostly for, for Dennis's For classes. my classes. We have a big thermometer on the wall and I want Chris to lose. So please go watch Sacramental Aesthetics, right? Study of Beauty in the Liturgy, one's on music documents in the Liturgy, and then the next one will be on active participation and what Vatican II really meant by that term. And Chris, did you want to add anything? Nope. He wants to know where they go to uh, find these online. www.liturgy.online. Excellent. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is? class anyone dear liturgy guys this AKA question chris yeah this question comes from jacob jacob says when the sacrament of anointing of the sick happens is it appropriate for people other than the priest to lay hands on the sick person's head what i have seen is that the priest lays hands on the person's head and then invites others in the room to do the same thanks jake inappropriate totes and approps totes and approps wow oh, really the gopes. Yeah, I think uh, um, the right does not envision that happening. So as you, you might look at it and say, well, it doesn't say you can't do it. Uh, I don't know. I know at one point in the right, pastoral care of the sick, um, there's provision for an extraordinary minister to lead certain rites, but a layperson never anoints. There's not a, a single rite that I can think of where a layperson anoints with any oil. Um and it says in the, in the rite for uh, anointing that where the priest or deacon doesn't anoint, but might uh, lay hands on the head of the person, the layperson can trace the sign of the cross. So there's just not, I can't think of any rite where a layperson lays hands on uh, uh, the recipient. I think there, there actually is one in RCIA, but that doesn't have anything to do with uh, anointing. So no, I just... Uh, if, if, the, if the right envisioned that, wanted us to do it, it would say so. And I'm not uh, aware that it does. I like when there's like a clear answer. Uh, so, Jacob, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless. I'm leaving in five minutes. I have already left. <laughs> nope, I'm not even here. My name's Chris. I'm Andre. <laughs> The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.